On Saturday, the co-founder of Twitter apologized for his creation. Why? Because it allowed the election of Donald Trump. In an interview with the New York Times, Evan Williams explained, quote, I think the Internet is broken, and it's a lot more obvious to a lot of people that it's broken. This is silliness, of course. The Internet isn't broken any more than guns are broken just because bad people use them sometimes to do bad things. The Internet is a tool that can do wonderful good or great evil. But Williams, like many of the left, believes that if a freedom can be exercised for great evil, it shouldn't be a freedom at all. Thus, he continues, quote, I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong about that. It's a very bad thing, Twitter's role in electing Trump. If it's true that he wouldn't be president if it weren't for Twitter, then yeah, I'm sorry. This is the problem with leftist thought. There are many Americans who are deeply unhappy at Trump's election, but there were just as many Americans unhappy at President Obama's election. Just because many Americans don't agree with Ev Williams doesn't make a forum for argument and discussion bad. In fact, that's what should make the forum important. The shortcoming isn't Twitter any more than the raucous debate that surrounds politics thanks to the First Amendment is responsible for excesses performed by individual human beings. We simply do not have the right to control what other people think or say, even if that results in bad people sometimes winning victories. We have the right to argue them out of their position The moment they move toward violence, we have the right to stop them. But Twitter didn't win the election for Trump. It just provided Trump a forum for espousing his views, which those on the left were unable to counter effectively. I don't believe all speech is created equal. Some is evil, some is valueless, some is great. But I also don't believe I have the right to be the sole determinant of where those lines are drawn. And I certainly don't think that tech executives who vote universally Democrat have that right either on a moral level. When Williams compares himself to Prometheus and says he deserves to have eagles, quote, peck out his guts for eternity for giving the power of tweets to Donald Trump, he forgets he didn't give the power of free speech to Trump. God did. He just provided a forum that wasn't moderated by someone with which he agrees. Which is a good thing. Perhaps you ought to help his Democratic friends come up with better arguments than shut Trump up if he wants Trump to lose. But Williams has another solution. Restore the gatekeepers. He says the problem is that not everyone is going to be cool because humans are humans. There's a lock on our office door and our homes in our, at night. The Internet was started without the expectation that we'd have to do that online. Except for the fact that there's no lock on our mouths. Nor should there be. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, President Trump went to Saudi Arabia, and great fun was had by all. He said some good things. He said some some things that were eh. And we'll talk about all of it. Plus, the imagery was just amazing. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Ring.com. So... Right now, if you go to ring.com slash Ben, you get $150 off a ring of security kit. So what that is, it's an advanced motion detection technology to protect your entire property. The kit includes a ring video doorbell for the front door. We have that at my house. What that is, is someone rings the doorbell, and usually somebody is ringing, or sometimes when people are robbing your house, they ring to see if you are home first before they rob the house. The ring video doorbell goes direct to your phone, so you can pick it up, see who's at the door, make sure that they think that you're at home, or just... Make sure that it's somebody that you know and like before you let them in. That's what Ring.com, the video doorbell, does for you. And then they have a Ring stick-up cam that's part of the Ring of Security Kit as well. It's a wireless, weatherproof HD camera to keep an eye on other parts of your property. And right now, if you go to Ring.com slash Ben, you get 150 bucks off a Ring of Security Kit. We have the kit. We've bought extra gear from Ring because we think that they are so terrific and their product is so great. Ring.com slash Ben. Right now, join the millions of homeowners who protect their homes with the Ring video doorbell. Again, it allows you to keep track of your entire property. Make sure that nobody's just ringing to break into your house. Ring.com slash Ben for 150 bucks off your kit. Plus, it allows them to know that, that we're the ones who sent you. So that helps them keep advertising and paying so that the show can continue to be brought to you for free. Okay, so lots going on. President Trump goes to Saudi Arabia. So 
it's great for Trump that he is now doing this foreign tour because it's obviously eating up all of the headlines. That's something that he needs because when last we left our story last Thursday, all of the talk was about Trump and Russia and firing of Comey and the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And there was a story that broke Friday that Trump had said to the Russians and the White House admitted that he said to the Russians that he was happy he got of Comey, he got rid of Comey because it provided him relief on the Russia issue, which is not something that you should probably be saying. But the focus has now shifted because Trump is abroad. So as a PR matter, it's really good that Trump is over in Saudi Arabia, especially because there's no proof that anybody's done anything egregiously wrong as of yet. And all of the Trump-Russia talk for the moment is just that talk. So Trump heads over to Saudi Arabia. And supposedly the point of a tour like this is to create new ties and reestablish old ties. Really the point of a tour, whenever a president does a foreign tour, the point of a, of a tour is generally the same as when you go into the office at your work, but you are capable of working from home. It's FaceTime. Okay, so the point is not to actually do anything useful. It's to demonstrate to people that you're active. It's to demonstrate to people that you are on the move, that things are happening. When Obama went on his apology tour after he was elected, that didn't actually accomplish anything other than sort of give off the image of America as a country in retreat. So Trump was going to Saudi Arabia in order to change the image of America as a country in retreat. Some of that he accomplished, some of that he didn't. But it started off, and, and I, I do say, I have to say, it's really funny. You know, when, when Trump arrived in Saudi Arabia, the Saudis knew that he loves pomp and circumstance and that he loves flattery, and flattery will get you everywhere with Trump. So they really laid out the, the red carpet for him. Here's what it looked like as Trump deplaned in Saudi Arabia. The music. Jafar, you must come and see this. Almost exactly like that, actually. Like, you see the guys dancing with the sword? So that actually happened in real life. Uh, so here is, here is some video of the Saudis doing the ceremonial sword dance because nothing says friendly to people like a ceremonial sword dance. Uh, so they all got out their swords into ceremonial And here is Trump bebopping along to the ceremonial sword dance. So Trump goes there and he takes part in all of this. And of course, everybody uh, on the left is saying, well, what in the world? This is the guy who was saying that, that Saudi Arabia was the, the people behind 9-11 and there he is bebopping along. So the left was kind of disappointed that Trump didn't start a nuclear war. The left is always disappointed when Trump exceeds expectations. And their expectation is that he was going to go to Saudi Arabia, spit on the Kaaba stone, uh, and then immediately declare that everybody ought to, to, to convert to Christianity. Uh, that is, of course, not what happened. And so they were very disappointed that wasn't what happened. The imagery that came out, though, was pretty weird because the, the great disconnect in American foreign policy, and this has existed well before the Bush administration, is this disconnect where we, we say that we're against radical Islamic terror, but then we make best friends with the Saudis who fund radical Islamic terror. So you have some weird photos that were coming out like this one. Uh, this is the this is a 10. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. This one. Uh, so you got Trump. With uh, this is the the uh, I believe the the king of Saudi Arabia. They're opening the global anti-terror center, which, again, if Saudi Arabia is involved in the global anti-terror center, I'm going to go with that's not going to be a huge success. Um, and apparently, Trump and the king of Saudi Arabia switching souls, actually, uh, or at least gazing into the palantir to see if they could see Sauron or not. The problem is that, that Hassan Rouhani is on the other end of that palantir and can actually see them. Uh, Austin, producer Austin, suggests that Donald Trump's basketball skills were actually sapped by this particular orb from Space Jam, which is indeed a possibility. In any case, 
Uh, all of this is, you know, not a huge deal. Uh, you, the, the, the right made a huge deal out of President Obama bowing to the king of Saudi Arabia. Trump didn't do that. The left, it was really funny. The left tried to tell a fake news story where Trump had bowed. He wasn't bowing, okay? The, the prince of Saudi Arabia gave him some sort of medal, and he bent over to receive it because the, how else do you get it? on the person's neck. I mean, it's like saying that, that Han Solo was bowing to Princess Leia when she was awarding him a medal after the destruction of the Death Star. No, it turns out that whenever somebody puts a medal around your neck, you have to sort of lower your neck so it can get around your neck. So the, the left immediately tried to suggest that he was bowing in the same way that, that Obama had bowed, and that, of course, is just ridiculous and silly towns and nonsense. Uh, I will again say that it was, I, had, I was of divided mind about, about all the pomp and circumstance surrounding Trump arriving. Um, Ann Coulter said, the reason that Saudi Arabia welcomed Trump this way is because he's an alpha as opposed to Obama, who was a real beta. Here was Ann on Saturday night. So I like the fact that, you know, because he's, he is a strong alpha male leader, that, that the Arabs respect him. They don't respect the beta male Obama. Okay, well, I think that there's maybe some truth to this. I think that it's more likely that the, the Muslims figured, that the, the Saudis figured, that if you flatter Trump a lot, then he will be nice to you. And the reason I say this is because that's exactly what Bibi Netanyahu did immediately afterwards. So Bibi saw that they had rolled out this red carpet. They brought in, uh, they, they brought in which country star was it? Uh, they, they brought in some country music singer uh, uh, to, to sing in front of like an all-male concert in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they, they like blew out, they, they basically did the full Vegas. Um, and Trump loved it. And so immediately, Bibi Netanyahu, recognizing that Trump loves to be feted and treated like a king, Bibi immediately mandated that all of his ministers had to be on the tarmac when Trump went to Israel. Trump arrived in Israel today, and Bibi mandated that they basically up the amount of pomp and circumstance because now this has turned into King Lear a little bit, where King Lear wants all of the daughters to show how much they love him and just express in the most glowing terms how much they love him. So all of it, is that a big deal or not? No. In fact, I think that it's kind of great when countries pay homage to the United States. We are the most powerful country on earth, as well we should be. Um, but I'm not sure that the Saudis are paying homage to the United States. I think they're paying homage to, to Trump, which is a slightly different thing. Okay, so then Trump goes and he does his Saudi speech. And the speech itself, you know, it was widely praised by people on the right. Um, I am of divided mind about the speech, to tell you the truth. Uh, I think there were some good things in the speech. I think that there were some things that were not so good in the speech. I don't think it has much to do with Trump. I think that Trump's speech has more to do with divides in the, mind of, in, in the mind of the American people. I think that the American people are a very divided mind on foreign policy, and they're not of clear mind on foreign policy. And there are three kind of key distinctions in foreign policy that the American people are not willing to face up to. Because foreign policy is filled with hard choices. Because anytime you talk about foreign policy, in reality what you're talking about is the balance between diplomacy, isolationism, involvement in the world, military use of force. And these are very difficult questions because no one wants to be the person who puts American soldiers in harm's way or expends American resources in pursuit of some goal that we don't care about. And so there are three kind of fundamental conflicts in American foreign policy that have never been resolved, uh, particularly since World War II. World War II is the last time that all of these were resolved in united fashion. Since then, the United States really has not had a coherent foreign policy because World War II was such a clear-cut moral battle and also such a clear-cut battle of self-defense at the same time. There was some of this during the Cold War as well. This was the key division between the right and the left. The right saw it as a moral battle and a self-defense battle. The left saw it as neither a self-defense battle nor a moral battle. And so there was battle over that. But here are sort of the three conflicts in American foreign policy, and you'll see how they materialize in Trump's speech. So 
The, the first one is about human rights. So Americans have a very kind of weird perspective about human rights. America has always stood for the notion that all human beings are created equal with certain inalienable rights. It's in our Declaration of Independence. That does not mean, however, that it is the job of the American government to achieve the realization of those inalienable rights for everyone. America doesn't have the power to do that. America doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. If we could snap our fingers and everybody would have governments that protect the same rights that we have, then we would obviously do that. But it's not about snapping the fingers. It's about what are you willing to sacrifice sacrifice to do that. So the basic American foreign policy has always been where possible we push, where not possible we hold off. But here's the truth. Since Vietnam, since the Vietnam War, we have very little interest as a people in foreign interventions on the basis of human rights until there's something gross on our TV, in which case we get aggressive in knee-jerk fashion, which is sort of what happened in Syria. So we were like, okay, we don't want anything to do with Syria. It's a civil war. It's going to get ugly. Fine. Who cares? And then there are pictures of gassed children on our TV, and everybody snaps to, and boom, we need to get involved right now. Right? We need to fire some cruise missiles and hit a camel in the ass right now. It's incoherent, but that incoherence didn't start with Trump, and it doesn't end with Trump. It's just incoherence that's been part of American foreign policy for the last few decades. What that incoherence means is it's more incoherent uh, it means that there are basically a couple of views on how to pursue human rights. People lie to themselves. Instead of just saying, listen, we're not going to save every, we're, we're not going to take every human rights violation all that seriously. We're not. We're going to take the human rights violation seriously that we have to take seriously and that, and that forward America's goals, we're not going to take other ones seriously. Instead, you end up with this sort of bizarre snap back and forth foreign policy. So President Obama would speak about human rights all the time, but then he felt that America was actually the threat to human rights, so he would withdraw from the region, and the isolationism ends up setting the region on fire. President Bush spoke about human rights, and he actually meant it, so that meant he was much more interventionist. Trump is actually more Obama than Bush, not because he thinks America is a bad force in the world, but just because he thinks America should be isolationist and not involved. And so his foreign policy on human rights is, I'm going to speak in strong terms about violation of human rights, but there's no actual carrot and there's no actual stick. And that's what was missing from the Saudi speech. There was not a lot of carrot. There was not a lot of stick. It was not clear what his actual plan was in any of this. And so you have to ask, okay, well, if he's not laying forth a plan in Saudi Arabia, what's he there to do? There's only two things a foreign speech really, well, three things a foreign speech can do. One is it can rev up your domestic, your domestic base. Yeah, it's, that I think Trump did and did well. The second thing that it could do is it could set forth a, a sort of foreign policy goal. I don't think that Trump did that all that well. And the third thing is he could set forward policy, and he didn't do that at all. Uh, the second conflict, so I said that there are three central conflicts to American foreign policy that Americans really have not yet come to grips with because it's ugly. We don't actually want to make these ugly choices. I'm going to get to the second one in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Upside. So I found this great way to travel. It's Upside.com. Upside.com is all about being able to travel for cheaper as a business traveler. It's basically you're, you have a business trip. It's not really for families. It's more you travel a lot. You have a business trip. You need to get from point A to point B. Upside.com bundles your flight and your hotel and gets you the cheapest possible price, and they kick back to you a gift card as well. So they bundle that flight and the hotel in a low price. They save money on business travel, and then they give you free Amazon gift cards. So if your company travels you a bunch of times a year, you can get thousands of dollars a year yourself just for buying your air and your hotel through Upside. So the price itself is lower than you'll get anywhere else. And then you also get the kickback from Amazon.com in terms of the in terms of the gift cards as well. So you get all your miles, you get a lower price, and that's all, all because of the bundling. They also have live customer service. So if you have a problem, you're not going to be stuck on the phone with the machine trying to figure all of it out. Upside.com is the best way to travel. Right now, if you use my name, so you go to you go to Upside.com slash Ben, or you use that promo code Ben, radio listeners promo code Ben, 
then you are guaranteed to get at least a $200 Amazon gift card for your first trip. So use my name, and it gets you at least a $200 Amazon gift card for free. You save big on travel. You get a big gift card every single trip. I love Upside.com. We use it here at the office ourselves. There's a minimum purchase required, and you can see the site for complete details. But again, you're going to save money for your company, and you personally benefit, which is pretty awesome. So go to Upside.com and use that promo code, Ben, not only so that they know that we sent you, but also so you can receive that $200 in gift cards with minimum purchase on your very first flight. So that is pretty awesome. Okay, so I said there are three fundamental contradictions in American foreign policy. One is over human rights. We say that we like them, then we're not willing to do all that much to to do anything about them in many cases until there's something ugly on our TV, and then we do something. And this has been true since Black Hawk Down in Somalia. It's been true in Yugoslavia. It's been true in Iraq. It's been true in Syria. It's been true in Libya. We have a tendency in the United States where we don't actually want to commit resources, but then when it comes down to it, we recognize that we are actually the world's policeman, whether we like it or not, and that we are sometimes going to have to commit resources. But there's no real good way to articulate that. Fundamental conflict number two, over radical Islamic terror. So there's a lot of talk about how Obama was doing a grave disservice to the United States by not recognizing the threat of radical Islamic terror. He wouldn't even say the words radical Islamic terror. And the reason that Obama said he wouldn't say the words radical Islamic terror is because his take, what he liked to say, is that if he said the words radical Islamic terror, he would be lumping terrorists in with regular Muslims. And it has nothing to do with Islam. It's just a cult of death that has nothing to do with Islam. And people on the right said, no, 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 no. It does have something to do with Islam. And if you fail to recognize that, then you're failing to look in the right place for the enemy. Like pretending that that terrorism is equally a threat in Sweden as it is coming from Saudi Arabia is just silly. It's just silly. And if you look at the polls, we'll see that a huge, huge number, hundreds of millions of Muslims, believe in things that we in the West would consider extraordinarily extreme. I mean, I have a whole video about this, about the myth of the tiny radical Muslim minority. And so the whole point here was that leads you to a long-term strategy about how do you change the Muslim world? Do you make temporary alliances? Do you call on Muslims to, to do forward groups that are more secular in nature? in Muslim countries. But the point is that labeling radical Islamic terror is connected to a worldview and an action. It's not just about saying the words and then doing nothing. And there is this fundamental disconnect in the American mind because once you recognize that hundreds of millions of people are radicalized, not terrorists, but radicalized and hold radical views according to Western standards, that requires a pretty large sacrifice of resources if you want to change that. It requires, for example, in some cases, regime change. It requires the backing of rebel groups in particular areas that we might find uncomfortable. It requires us to get deeply involved in areas that we don't necessarily want to be involved in. And so what we tend to do is we tend to say, well, yeah, we should label the bad guys. They're radical Islamic terrorists. But also, it's really not that many of them, and they're really not worshiping Islam. So that's sort of what happened with Trump yesterday. He said radical Islamic terror, and then he parroted a bunch of Obama platitudes. And finally, the the third conflict that exists in American foreign policy that we really don't want to face up to is is isolationism itself. So Americans tend to be gut-level isolationists. There has yet to be a president who ran on being an interventionist. All presidents run on being isolationists, essentially, and they all end up interventionists because the world is a pretty complex place. So you can either be honest about your foreign policy or you can be not honest about your foreign policy. President Bush ended up, he campaigned as an isolationist. He ended up as an interventionist and stretched us too far in the process. President Obama embraced isolationism and watched the region burst into flame. The truth is that Trump is more along Obama's lines in terms of withdrawal from the region than he is along Bush's lines in terms of intervention in the region. And and so the speech was more about, like the right saw it as as a fundamental rebuke to Obama. And in some ways it was. 
the truth is it was actually more of a fundamental rebuke to the Bush foreign policy than to the Obama foreign policy. So now I actually want to play some of the speech. With all that in mind, I actually want to go through some of the speech. But in order for us to actually go through the speech, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. So for $8 a month, you can go over and subscribe at dailywire.com, see the rest of the show live with our sparkling analysis each and every day. Plus, on Thursdays, we do the mailbag, so you can be part of that. There are plenty of other goodies coming. And if you're an annual subscriber, then right now you still get a free copy of the Arroyo, a modern Western set on the southern border about a rancher trying to protect his lands from the depredations of and, and uh, depravity of the, of the Mexican drug cartels. So go over and subscribe. Become an annual subscriber over at dailywire.com. Check that out. Uh, or if you just want to listen later, go over to iTunes or SoundCloud. Become a subscriber. Leave a review. We always appreciate your reviews. Make sure it's five stars or we don't want it. Um, but go over, to, <laughs> go over to iTunes or SoundCloud and make sure you do that. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So because Trump is more a reflective leader than he is a leader leader, that means that all of the conflicts that I just talked about, the conflicts over isolationism and human rights and radical Islamic terror and what it means, all of them appeared in his speech. It was sort of incoherent. Uh, and people were excited because they were grading him against Trump. Yes, if you grade things against, I mean, they're grading things against Obama. Yes, if you grade things against Obama, everything is an A+. Right? My friend Kurt Schlichter has a piece today where he thinks Trump is doing an A-plus job because he's not Obama. Okay, again. By that same standard, a flaming bag of dog do on your front porch is an A-plus because it's not Obama. Obama was that bad a president. He did that many bad things. And this is true. Trump's speech yesterday, compared to the Cairo speech from 2009 from Obama, which was a disaster of, of apology for the United States and, and ripping on Israel and misconstruing everything about American foreign policy. Compared to that, this thing was, you know, Lincoln-esque. But compared to what a Republican foreign policy speech should be, it lacked in a few places because when you really boil down the speech, it turned out that the speech kind of boiled down to, we hate radical Islamic terror. Also, the Saudis who fund it are going to be the leaders in this fight. We can't do anything about it. You guys handle it. Have a good time. That's sort of what it boiled down to. Okay, so the speech began with President Trump making the case for for basically selling lots and lots of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Now, the real case for, for selling weapons to Saudi Arabia is to defend Saudi Arabia against Iran. That's the real case for, for, for selling all these weapons to Saudi Arabia. It didn't start under Trump, to be fair. I think the Obama administration sold $110 billion worth of, worth of equipment to the Saudis. The Israelis are not super comfortable with this because the Saudi government, number one, is kind of tenuous, and number two, they've never been too pro-Jew. In fact, they banned Jews from entering the country. Uh, the only Jews in the country yesterday were uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. Um, but they, like, they actually banned Jewish journalists from getting into Saudi Arabia as long as they held dual Israeli passports. Uh, so, the, uh, the, But Trump tried to play the, the Saudis buying equipment, tried to, tried to play that as we're just helping the American economy. They're going to buy lots of American goods, which, I mean, it's, it's really funny because a lot of the people who back Trump rail against the military-industrial complex. This right here would be the definition of the military-industrial complex is the president of the United States touting the fact that foreign countries are buying weapons from our military, you know, from our military structure. Yesterday, we signed historic agreements with the kingdom that will invest almost $400 billion in our two countries and create many hundreds of thousands of jobs in America and Saudi Arabia. This landmark agreement includes the announcement of a $110 billion Saudi-funded defense purchase. And we will be sure to help our Saudi friends to get a good deal from our great American defense companies, the greatest anywhere in the world.
not sure why we would want to get them a great deal. I mean, I thought the whole point here is that they pay us lots of money so that we can employ people, but sure. Okay, then he goes on and he talks about how the Saudis are going to help us in the fight against global terror, which, again, is just laughable. It is. I mean, the, 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 leading, the leading sponsor of the Wahhabist ideology, which is responsible for the rise of al-Qaeda and ISIS, is the Saudi royal government. Uh, and here he is saying that he's founded this global center for combating extremist ideology. Even the name is a dead giveaway that nothing's going to happen here. Uh, here he is talking about it. And people on the right who are satisfied with this, let me just ask you this. If Obama had gone to Saudi Arabia and said, we're fighting terror now. That's what we do. We're going to get together with the Saudi royal government and we've put together a center. A center where we do things. It's called the Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology. We'd be like, wait, wait, wait. For combating extremist ideology from the Saudis? Are you kidding me? Trump does it. It's totally different because, you know, we're Republicans and such. Later today, we will make history again with the opening of the new Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology. Located right here in this central part of the Islamic world. This groundbreaking new center represents a clear declaration that Muslim-majority countries must take the lead in combating radicalization. And I want to express our gratitude to King Solomon for his strong demonstration and his absolutely incredible and powerful Leadership. Okay, I, again, King Salman has not been an incredibly powerful leader in the anti-terror fight. They, they, they oppose terrorists inside the kingdom, but they fund terrorists outside the kingdom. Okay, he went on, and then he talked about America as a sovereign nation and what we're here to do. And this was the part where if Obama had said it, people on the right really would have lost their minds. Here, here he is. America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be, or how to worship. Instead, we are here to offer partnership based on shared interests and values to pursue a better future. Okay, so sorry for the Saudi translator who comes in for no reason there, but the, what, what he's, it's, it's, it's a weird statement. It's a weird statement because if you just took that middle sentence, we're not here to lecture. If Obama had said that to the Muslim world, he would have said, wait, wait, why shouldn't we lecture the Muslim world? The Muslim world is replete with human rights violations and repression. The Muslim world is full of anti-Semitism and anti-Christian sentiment and anti-Christian action. Why shouldn't we lecture? Of course we should lecture. I mean, that should be part of our job is to try and convince them to move away from this sort of radicalism. And he says that we're doing this because, well, America first. But, you know, there is a strong argument to be made that America first would actually require us to speak up on behalf of American values. And that last sentence where he says, we're here to offer partnership based on shared interests and values. It's that phrase and values that's a problem. If he just said, we're here to offer partnership based on shared interests. That's the full realist perspective, and that's the honest perspective that Trump probably believes, which is not that we have common values, but we have a common interest in doing certain things, so we'll get together with you on that, and that's the extent of our relationship. Right? That would actually be the full realist perspective, but it's because Americans can't tolerate that that we have this divided mind. Okay, he continues along these lines, and then he talks about we have to, do, we have to destroy terrorism, and, he, and then he proceeds to name every nation that has suffered terrorism but Israel. Right? So this is not a, a situation where Trump was actually speaking truth to power in Saudi Arabia. Again, I'm not blaming him because I think Americans, he's a reflection of what Americans think, and we don't know what we think. But when he goes to Saudi Arabia and he says, all of these various countries have suffered terror, Australia, China, Japan, Britain, France, 
not the Jews. You know, and, and when he avoids Israel, the reason he's avoiding Israel is not to piss off the Saudis. If you think that there is a unified global war on radical Islamic terror, Israel is the spear, the, the tip of the spear in all of that. And he's visiting Israel right now, is President Trump. And in visiting Israel, like on the same day he's visiting Israel, a Palestinian tried to stab an Israeli soldier in the old city of Jerusalem while he was there and was shot dead in the process. Yes, the radical Islamic terror threat does encompass Israel. He avoids that as well. Then he does, here's the part where he actually paraphrases Obama. So this is the conflict I was talking about with radical Islamic terror. So he does say, and we'll get to it, he does say that radical Islamic terror is a huge problem. And he, and, he, and he doesn't say the words radical Islamic terror. He calls it Islamist extremism, which is the same difference, basically. But he then proceeds to walk that back by pretending that it's a tiny minority of people and that it really has nothing to do with Islam. So here is the part where these words could have come out of President Obama's mouth. This is clip five. But this untapped potential, this tremendous cause of optimism, is held at bay by bloodshed and terror. There can be no coexistence with this violence. There can be no tolerating it, no accepting it, no excusing it, and no ignoring it. Every time a terrorist murders an innocent person, and falsely invokes the name of God, it should be an insult to every person of faith. Terrorists do not worship God. They worship death. That's not true. A lot of terrorists worship Allah. Okay, let's just be real about this. A lot of terrorists worship Allah. They're very religious Muslims. And to pretend that they're not, that they're just worshiping death, is not true. They think that death in pursuit of glory is, is a heavenly command. But the idea they worship death, this is, this is a way of avoiding the key issue, which is a lot of the people sitting in the room that he's talking to are actively supporting terror and oppression. Okay? And he's, he's avoiding that. And I understand him avoiding it, but don't go and make a speech about, you know, you're going to set a whole new foreign policy. Here's the thing. If you're just going to set a strategy of realism, you don't actually need a speech to do that. If he wants to form some sort of coalition against Iran, he can call up the Saudis. He can call up the Jordanians. There are phones in the White House, and he can form all of this. The whole point of the speech is presumably to do one of two things, as I say. Put the world on notice or set out a policy. And there was no real policy. And if you're sitting in this room, then what you're really thinking is... There's no carrot and there's no stick here. There's really nothing here. So clip seven is the one where people are, are you know, rallying around us and saying this is, the, this is the key to his whole speech. So watch that one. America is prepared to stand with you in pursuit of shared interests and common security. But the nations of the Middle East cannot wait for American power to crush this enemy for them. The nations of the Middle East will have to decide what kind of future they want for themselves for their country, and frankly, for their families and for their children. It's a choice between two futures, and it is a choice America cannot make for you. A better future is only possible if your nations drive out the terrorists and drive out the extremists. Drive them out. Drive them out of your places of worship. Drive them out of your communities. Drive them out of your holy land. And drive them out of this earth. So a lot of people were comparing this to sort of the, the formulation of tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. The difference is that the implication with tear down this wall was you tear down this wall or we will. 
Right? If you don't tear down this wall, we are going to take measures that are going to result in this wall being torn down. I mean, if you read the entire Reagan speech at the Brandenburg Gate, that's basically what he says. He says we're involved in treaties about arms reduction, and we want to push that forward, but we are perfectly willing to support anybody who's basically standing up to the Soviets. And you know, Trump leads off with, we're prepared to stand with you, but basically this is on you guys. It's on you guys. Well, do you think they're really going to do anything? Do you think that the Saudi royal family, we just signed a huge deal with them to give them $350 billion worth of arms. Do you think they're afraid that Trump is going to come in and punish them if they, if they keep funding terror? Do you think that anybody in that room is really super fearful of that? Or does it come off more as a plea? And this is the, the problem that I have with sloganeering that's backed up by nothing. I'd rather you not sloganeer and just pursue a policy quietly than go out there and say slogans that you don't have the backup for. This is why, you know, when Trump fired missiles into Syria... Great. I'm glad that he fired missiles into Syria, but there actually has to be something backing that up. Otherwise, it just looks like paper tiger time. It looks like it looks like Bill Clinton firing a, a, a missile into a medicine factory in Sudan uh, and then calling it a day. He Trump laid out his what, what he called his, his sort of general ideology in, in the next clip. This is this is where he basically says what America is going to do and what it's not going to do. And there isn't a tremendous amount here again. For our part. America is committed to adjusting our strategies to meet evolving threats and new facts. We will discard those strategies that have not worked and will apply new approaches informed by experience, talent, and judgment. We are adopting a principled realism rooted in common values, shared interests, and common sense. Our friends will never question our support, and our enemies will never doubt our determination. This is ad hoc foreign policy, which is, which is okay, but let's just call it what it is. And then finally, this is the part that people really resonated to. This is where he finally said Islamist extremism, and people on the right cheered, and people on the left booed. But we'll play the whole clip, because I think it's important to see where he goes from there. Muslim nations must be willing to take on the burden if we are going to defeat terrorism and send its wicked ideology into oblivion. The first task in this joint effort is for your nations to deny all territory to the foot soldiers of evil. Every country in the region has an absolute duty to ensure that terrorists find no sanctuary on their soil. Okay, so the, the, and then he went on from there where he talked about how he was going to, he said, we have to honestly confront the crisis of Islamist extremism and the, and the Islamist terror groups it inspires. And then he says, many nations here have taken important steps to raising that, mes that, that message. And then he mentions Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon. Really? <laughs> okay, all those nations have connections to terrorism, Jordan the least of them. Um, but it's it's... Again, it's, it's not because of Trump. It's because there's this divided mind in the United States. I'm not going to blame Trump for that. He did talk about isolating Iran, um, but at the very end of that, he said that the only way to isolate Iran was, he said, all nations of conscience must work together to isolate Iran, deny it funding for terrorism, and pray for the day when the Iranian people have the just and righteous government they deserve. So in other words, we're, there's no military option on the table. Uh, there's no real punishment on the table. So a lot of talk, not a lot of backup, and I'm not sure that that is, uh, I, I just, I don't think it's counterproductive, I think, to step away from Obama, which is a step in the right direction for sure. But I also don't think that it is the, the over the moon, we should be celebrating restoration of American power in the world speech that everyone thinks it is, because I don't think the American people are really ready for that, or maybe even want it. Okay, so before I go any further, 
I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So Skillshare is this fantastic service where if you subscribe to Skillshare, they have all of these 45-minute courses that allow you to broaden your skill set. So America's job market right now is really fluid. That means that you can't expect to work at the same company with the same skill set for the next 50 years. You're lucky if you can expect to do that for the next five. That means you have to be constantly broadening your skill set. And that's what Skillshare.com is for. It's an online learning community with over 15,000 classes in design, business, and more. You can do everything from logo design to social media marketing to street photography. It's all just these classes where you learn and learn and learn, which is, of course, what I love and teaches you about entrepreneurship and marketing and photography and design. If you're in business, you constantly need to be learning because that's how you keep ahead of your competitors. Skillshare.com slash Shapiro is the way to do this. And right now, if you go to Skillshare.com slash Shapiro, you can redeem a free month. You get one month unlimited access to all of these courses. So you can go look at a dozen courses, and you'll see that it is totally worth it and that you need access to these because it's going to allow you to continue broadening your resume and making it possible for you to be paid more, make your business run more efficiently. They also have a bunch of fun classes, so I have, yes, uh, don't laugh, I've been taking a watercolor class with Skillshare.com because I, you know, I, I, my, my skill set is basically getting on the radio and talking, um, but my, uh, my other skill set is apparently painting, like Winston Churchill or George W. Bush. So I've been taking a, a Skillshare class uh, over there on, uh, on watercolor painting, and it is a lot of fun. But they have this broad range. I mean, they have 15,000 classes, and it's really terrific. So go over to Skillshare.com slash Shapiro and use that slash Shapiro so you get that one-month unlimited free access so you can check it out. You're not going to regret it. It's a terrific service. Okay, so... Meanwhile, uh, Trump, Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia is what's happening over there, and Trump's Middle East trip continues to eat up the headlines, which is very good for Trump for sure. Meanwhile, uh, there is a continued fallout from all of the news last week regarding James Comey. Uh, Mike Flynn, who's Trump's former national security advisor, he has now come out and uh, he says that he's going to plead the fifth. He's going to invoke the Fifth Amendment uh, in front of a Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, important to mention, that does not actually mean that Mike Flynn is guilty. Okay, one of the reasons that you invoke the fifth in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee is because you're not stupid and you don't want to be caught in some sort of perjurious lie. This is how Scooter Libby ended up in prison, not because he did anything wrong, but because someone asked a gotcha question, he answered it wrong, and then he was convicted of perjury. So Flynn is going to be very careful about this. Um, that's the news that's coming out today. There was news that came out Friday, as I mentioned, in which Trump apparently, and the White House confirmed this, which is insane, Trump told the Russians the day after he fired Comey that he was relieved that Comey was gone, the former FBI director, that he'd fired Comey. He was pleased that Comey had been ousted because he felt relief on the Russia investigation, which is just, why in the world would you say that? Why in the world would you say that? You remember, the day after he fired Comey, he had the Russians, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign ambassador, and Sergei Kislyak, the, the, or, or the, uh, the Russian foreign minister and the foreign ambassador, he had both of them to the White House the day after, and people were like, well, that's kind of weird. And people on the right, including me, were saying, eh, it's not that big a deal. Like, what's he going to do, spill classified information to them and then joke about how he's glad he offed Comey? He did both those things. Okay, like, this is not a good thing. And you can see the Trump administration struggling to deal with it, which is why it's good that he's in the Middle East right now. Rex Tillerson, uh, the Secretary of State, who really is not good at his job, he, today he actually came out and he said that Tel Aviv is the home of Judaism. Uh, no, that's like saying Las Vegas is the home of Christianity. Okay, Tel Aviv is a modern secular city that is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Uh, that's silly. Anyway, Tillerson was, told, uh, was asked about Trump telling the Russians this stuff, and here was Tillerson's answer. My question to you, sir, as someone who was in that meeting, was he telling the Russians that firing Comey was taking off legal and political pressure? 
Uh, Chris, that's not my, uh, my interpretation, certainly, of the conversation. And I think what the president was trying to convey to the Russians is, look, I'm not going to be distracted by this, this, uh, all these issues that are here home uh, they, you know, that affect us domestically. I'm not going to let that distract from our efforts to see if we can engage with you, engage with Russia, and identify terrible areas. Excuse, but let's go through another terrible excuse. H.R. McMaster, who's probably the most credible member of the administration, the National Security Advisor, he's asked the same question. He gives a similarly unconvincing answer. Here's what the president said in the meeting. I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I face great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Is that what the president said? Well, I don't remember exactly what the president said, and the notes that they apparently have, I do not think are a direct transcript. But the gist of the conversation was that the president feels as if he's hamstrung in his ability to, to work with Russia to find areas of cooperation because this has been obviously so much in the news. And that was the intention of that portion of the conversation. Yeah, not so much. Okay, so bottom line is that uh, Trump you know, should, should now just allow this to play out and be quiet. This is the same theme I was, I was reiterating last week because his people don't have good excuses for it either. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things I like, uh, continuing from last week, I was reading a lot of religious literature over the weekend, so I picked up again uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, uh, which is just a fabulous, fabulous book. If you've never read it, it is funny, it is witty. The whole basis of the book is that Screwtape, who is sort of an underling to Satan, is writing to his nephew, who is also an underling to Satan, uh, and they are. And his nephew is trying to recruit a guy into hell, basically, trying to get him to abandon his religion. And the guy, meanwhile, is being drawn closer to Christianity. And so the the uncle who works for Satan basically lays out all of the different things that can draw you into into the embrace of hell, into the embrace of an ungodly perspective. It's funny, it's witty, it's it's just it's a it's a great, great book. The screw tape letters by C. S. Lewis, obviously a classic of the genre. I would say it's got to be one of the top three religious books ever written. I mean, aside from, obviously, biblical literature. I think it's one of the top three religious books ever written, just because it's, it's so clever and, and wonderful. Um, okay, so uh, we'll save, for things I, for things I like, uh, we'll save Mike Pence speaking at Notre Dame for tomorrow, I guess. Um, but things that I hate, The Daily Beast ran a piece uh, by a woman named Samantha Allen, in which she decried the supposed intolerance of Americans regarding transgender people. What makes Americans so darn intolerant? She cited a YouGov survey that found that, quote, less than 20% of Americans said they would be open to dating a transgender person. She said this was disappointing but unsurprising. Cultural acceptance has tended to lag behind formal recognition. And then, apparently, uh, younger, 13%, 13% of 35 to 54-year-olds said they were open to having sex with a transgender woman, and 19%, nearly one in five, People who are 18 to 34 said that they were open to having sex with a transgender woman, which is to say a biological man. Surgery, no surgery, doesn't matter. So if a dude comes and says he's a woman, you should have sex with him so that you're not sexist, I guess. Which is weird for gay people because if you're a lesbian, you don't want to have sex with a man. As long as he calls himself a woman, I guess you're a sexist also. This just demonstrates how insane the left has become. You are now considered sexist if you prefer to have sex with a person of the opposite sex or if you have any discriminatory feelings about whom you wish to have sex with. So here's the big question. If sex and gender are simply a social construct, then aren't all aren't all preferences discriminatory? Should we all be forced to just marry whomever the left thinks we ought to marry and have sex with whomever the left thinks we ought to have sex with? Absurd all the way around. Unbiological, unscientific, but that's the left these days. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk about Trump's trip to Israel and much, much more. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 
We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 